continue our study of Romans, Romans chapter 2, and I'm going to attempt to do something this morning I don't do real often. We're about to take a real big bite out of Romans. matter of fact, we're going to try to finish Romans chapter 2 this morning. Now, lots of time these lessons are three and four, five verses at a time, and there are 12 verses left in Romans chapter 2. Uh, and I'm going to try to take all of them at one leap. And the reason we're doing that is because the previous passage, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2, build the case against the self-righteous Jew that Paul is addressing. But now he makes that case in the remainder of the chapter, and he makes it in a series of very specific, short arguments and questions and uh, statements of application. Verses 1 through 16 can be seen as uh, as the statement of the principles that Paul is about to act on, and then the rest of the chapter is the specific application of those principles. Remember, all of those principles in those first 16 verses dealt with the judgment of God. And, and we saw that God judges by truth, amen, that he's not a respecter of persons, that he doesn't judge according to the way we judge, but God judges according to his word and his truth, and his judgment is impartial. And because of that, he's not going to let the sinning Jew slide just because he's a Jew. He's not getting off the hook just because he has the law. So what's going to happen in this next 12 verses is Paul is going to make that application to the Jews. So we're going to hit the ground running and try to cover all of that. And I'll be cognizant of the time, and if we need to stop, we will. But read. you can read in your Bible. It's going to be real important this morning that you have your Bible and that you follow with me since uh, the text will not be on the screen behind me. But Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, says, Behold... Thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another... Teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through the breaking of the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. That's a big passage of scripture. We're going to do our best to handle it all in the next 30, 40 minutes. Amen. 
Amen. It starts with this. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. The section begins by describing the position that the Jew has, an exalted position, a, a great opportunity that was available to the Jew. It envisions the typical Jew who has the law and who puts his trust in the fact that he has the law. Remember, Paul's responding to this antagonistic Jew, and, and he sees this individual as one that possesses the law, and he trusts in the law. Paul says that he rests on the law. It is the basis of all of his hopes. He believes that it is the basis of his salvation. He sees the law as his advantage. He does not see the law as his accuser, to him, it is the mark of God's favor on him and on his nation. The Jew knew that there was only one God, and he knew that that one true God had a special regard for the children of Abraham. So he took pride in that God. The word boast come, conveys the notion of a deeply felt pride. The Jew, he rests on the law, and he's proud of the fact that he knows God. He knows there's only one God. The pagan nations don't understand that, but he does, and he rejoices at the knowledge that he has this truth. His boast was in the God that he knew and that he felt like nobody else knew. Nobody else understood this God. The problem is not his boast. His boast is righteous. He indeed has truth. He indeed knows that there is only one God. The problem is that he did not sufficiently consider the character of that God. He is so enamored with the revelation of God that he is blinded to the reality of God. He neglected to consider that the same God that would judge the Gentiles would also judge him. And verse 18 says, And knowest his will, and approvest the things which are more, that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. So this Jew, he knows God's will. Notice Paul didn't just say, you claim to know the will of God. He said, you know the will of God. He actually knows God's will. That acknowledgement is an affirmation of the Jew's privileged position. He really knows the will of God. He understands that the nations ought to worship the one true God, that they ought to serve him and him alone. But it's also an affirmation of the rebuke that is coming. For even though he knows the will of God, he fails to act on that will himself. The rest of the verse says that he prides himself in giving approval to what he knows what is excellent. He knows the difference between right and wrong, and he prides himself in that. And he has been instructed in the law. He's a student of the law. He ought to know what pleases God. Amen? Verse 19 says, And art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness. So Paul says that the Jew is confident that because of the truth that he possesses, he is a guide to the blind. He is a light to those that live in darkness. The Jew sees himself as superior. He sees himself as having truth while others possess a lie. Amen. And, and all the other people are blind, but he alone has sight. And because of that, he is their guide. Now, there is an important truth in that because that is the role that God originally ordained for Israel to play in the world. Amen. He didn't give Israel the revelation of the mighty God so that they could hoard that unto themselves. 
He gave that to them so that they could be a light to the darkness of the world. Now, there's a lot of scripture I could go to to reinforce that. I'm going to read two passages of scripture, and we're going to move on. But Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6 says, I will also give thee, speaking of Israel, for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Israel had a role to play. The revelation that God gave them wasn't just for them. It was for them to show to the world. Isaiah 60 and 3 said, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. They were intended to be teachers. They were intended to demonstrate the great God. God gave Israel the revelation of who he was, but that revelation was never meant to be the private treasure of that nation. It was never to be something that was held in exclusion from the rest of the world. God never intended for Israel to withhold the revelation of the mighty God from the world. Rather, Israel was to bring that light of God into the darkness of the world. They were to be the shining example of God's goodness and God's grace and, and God's mercy. It was, it was that nation was to share that revelation of God with the multitudes that did not have it. We see flashes of that through Scripture. Daniel comes out of the lion's den and a whole pagan nation turns to the worship of that one true God. That was supposed to have been the way it worked, amen. They, they were intended to have been a testimony to the world. They, they were intended to have been a shining example of the goodness of God. And so they were supposed to approach that revelation that God gave them, not with pride. I've got something that the rest of the world doesn't have. I've got a treasure that nobody else understands. But they were supposed to approach that with humility, always bearing in mind, that the Jew who had received the revelation of the one God would have been just as much in the dark as the Gentiles were it not for that one God who chose them, who called them out, and who revealed himself to them. But the Jew didn't get that. He's special. So he boasted in his privileged position when he should have boasted in what God had done for him when he should have boasted in the great grace of God that reached down and lifted him out of darkness and gave him light. So Israel assumed a role of spiritual superiority when, in fact, the only thing that distinguished them from the Gentile nations was the grace of God. God, by his grace, reached down and pulled them out and separated them. They didn't choose God. God chose them. They didn't select God and choose to follow God. They didn't, they didn't discover this truth by themselves. God chose them. God revealed himself. God showed himself to them. And so they had no cause to act as if they were superior to everyone else. Instead, they should have recognized that it was their God, that one true God that was superior to all others, and that they were called to be the ambassadors of that mighty God to a world that was shrouded in darkness. So he says in verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. So since the Jew had the treasure of the law, he sees himself as a teacher of the immature Gentiles. He, he is a teacher of those foolish people who have no knowledge of the living God. And again, there's a considerable measure of truth in that. 
it's a position that 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 the Jew should have been in righteously, not with pride and arrogance, with his, but with humility. And it is a position that the Jewish antagonist that Paul is responding to would have taken. In the law, he sees this revelation of God and he sees it as a special treasure and he sees it as something that is to be treasured above all other earthly possessions and he sees that he has a privileged position. There's nothing wrong with that. What was wrong with it was the pride that came along with it. What Paul is saying, though, the problem isn't the revelation. The problem isn't the law. The problem isn't what God has given you. The problem is that the treasure is of no value unless you use it correctly, unless it brings about the desired result in your life. And this is now where Paul comes to the point. The Jew has not used the treasure the way he should have used the treasure. And a series of questions that are going to follow in the next few verses, Paul makes it plain that at point after point, the Jew who received the law and this privileged position because of the law has, in fact, failed to live up to that revelation. He's failed to live up to the law. He calls himself a teacher but he hasn't even lived what he teaches. And that's the point that's about to be made. Instead of being humble at the revelation of God and seeking to show his gratitude to God by living in accordance with the revelation that God has given him, the Jew gloried in his superior spiritual privilege, his superior position, and displayed a totally uncalled for spiritual pride. He thought he was above the law. Because he received the law. He did not recognize that his, in his conduct, he was denying the very teaching of the law that he prided himself on. Remember, we began with he rests on the law. That is his basis for all of his claims. But now we're seeing what we're about to see unfold is that his actions mitigate that. They take the, the superior position away they they undermine the support of the very thing that he rests on and they they his actions actually cause where he was intended to be a light to the gentiles intended to cause the gentiles to recognize this great god instead his actions cause the gentiles to blaspheme god what he does causes the gentiles actually to turn against God or turn away from God by his double standard. Verse 21 says, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Superior position brings a superior responsibility. Great opportunity brings great obligation. The Jew who does not put faith in God, the Jew who does not obey the law that was brought to him, that was revealed to him, is guilty of not fulfilling his responsibility and his obligation because he disobeys the very thing that he thinks makes him special. Paul begins with the general question. The Jew has the place of a teacher of nations. He, he thinks of himself as a teacher. But Paul points out that the teacher hasn't taught himself. The things that he teaches, 
he doesn't live by. Then he turns to a very specific transgression, stealing. You see, it's easy to preach honesty to other people, but it's not nearly so easy to be completely honest in one's own dealings. You know, we, we, we have a tendency, and I've said this several times in the last few weeks, we have a, a strong tendency to think the best of ourselves and to think that whatever we do is right. So whenever someone takes from us what did not belong to them, we see it as a major offense. They're a thief and they're guilty under the law. But whenever we fudge a little here or there, and, and we take what wasn't really ours, we tend to see ourselves in a positive light. And what we do is minor, while what they did is major. That's the point that Paul is making. He's pointing out the hypocrisy of such rationalization. You teach against stealing, but you're a thief yourself. He goes on and says, Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, thou hate idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? So adultery was a widely practiced thing in the ancient world. In many places, it was normal practice for men to commit adultery. Now, it was never acceptable for women. All of you ladies can take that up with history. I don't, I don't know what the, the rationale is behind it's okay for a man, but it's not okay for a woman, but it was there. But the Jews were supposed to have held a different standard. They weren't supposed to be involved in that kind of activity. They, they had a higher standard than the Gentile world in respect to adultery. But they didn't always keep their standard. They weren't blameless in that regard. There were those men who regarded themselves as teachers of the Gentiles that were unfaithful to their spouse. They committed adultery. Not only that, but Paul says he, he brings up this, this charge of sacrilege. You see, the Jews were known for their hatred of idols. They prided themselves on monotheism, that they worshiped the one true God and him only. They didn't worship idols, and it was a major part of their religion. They rejected all idolatry. But Paul questions that very significant practice of the Jews, that they were really, truly what they said they were. He, he doesn't speak of worshiping idols. He doesn't say, you say you hate idols, but you worship idols, because no Jew would be caught worshiping an idol. But what he does say is, perhaps they profit from idols. The word sacrilege actually translates or means robbing temples. And the exact meaning, what Paul means by it isn't, isn't just abundantly clear. There are about three different options here. It may mean that these Jews profited economically from the worship of idols. They didn't worship idols, but perhaps through some kind of commerce related to the worship of idols, they made money from those who did worship idols. Maybe they sold the incense that was burned in the temple of a pagan god. Maybe they actually bought and sold the idols themselves without worshiping them themselves. Somehow they, they made profit from idolatry. Some take it to mean that the Jews were 
guilty of misdirecting offerings that were intended for the temple. Temple offerings, offerings that were intended for the worship of God. Perhaps they took them and used them for something else. Perhaps they, and there's actually a famous case in Rome uh, of that happening, of a Jewish synagogue and around the time that the, the Roman governor and the Roman uh, politicians turned in against the Christians and began the persecution that is so famous through the first century. Part of what incited that was a great Ponzi scheme that was taking place in a Jewish temple. So perhaps there was some of that. Perhaps offerings were being brought to the temple that were supposed to have gone into the hands or the coffers of the work of God, but they were being taken and used for something else. The third option is that sacrilege here simply refers to withholding the tithe and offering that belongs to God by not giving God what was his. This Jew that condemns others for worshiping idols doesn't even give unto God that which was his. He commits sacrilege. He robs the temple. He robs from God. Either way, what Paul's saying here is that you can you can take pride in the fact that you don't worship idols, but what you're doing is just as bad. Whether you're profiting from the sale of things that economically benefit those that are worshiping idols or perhaps you're you're taking money that was given to the temple of god and used it for something else or maybe you're just holding your money back from god whatever it is you're guilty of the same thing they're guilty of that's the charge that he's making in verse 23 he says thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law dishonors thou god he asks it as a question he points to the inconsistency that is at the heart of this Jewish way of living, this the way they practice the law. Paul's saying that it's one thing to have the law, but it's another thing to keep the law. And since the law was God's supreme gift to the Jews, to break that law is to dishonor God. The Jew rested on the law. Remember, we started with the statement that he rests on it. This is the foundation for his superior position. This is what elevates him above everybody else. This is what makes him special. But he dishonors that law by not obeying it. Paul's accusation strikes to the very heart of the matter. The Jew may think that he gives God a place of honor in his life, but Paul is pointing out, that his practice denies his profession. What he says is different than what he does. And we're building now on the, all the last couple of weeks of teaching out of the first 16 verses where we said over and over again, it matters what you do. This is why Paul made that point so strongly. Because what he says is different than what he does. And he teaches others, but he violates the law himself. And his actions dishonor God. With his mouth, he gives lip service to God. With his mouth, he gives worship to God. With his mouth, he exalts the one true God. That revelation that makes him special. But with his actions, he dishonors God. He shows no respect to God. And verse 24 really drives it home. He says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. So Israel should have been a source of blessing to the Gentiles. He should have brought them to praise God. He should have been a light in their darkness. But instead, Israel caused the pagan nations 
to blaspheme God. He caused the Gentiles to curse God. The inconsistency of the Jews. This arrogant Jew, his inconsistency leads Gentiles to reject God and even blaspheme God's name. Now, David Bernard noted at this verse that it has a powerful application to us today. We regard ourselves as the people of the name. We're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and we exalt that name. Amen. Give it its rightful place. There's no other name under heaven. Give it among men whereby you must be saved. But if we, the people of the name, don't walk worthy of that name, if we don't live a life, if, if we just say with our mouths, well, we exalt Jesus, but we don't live a life that exalts Jesus, then we could be guilty of the same thing the Jews were guilty of. We can give cause for others to blaspheme Jesus. We give cause for others to blaspheme God. We can give cause, occasion for sinners to reject God because of the double standard in our lives. Now, we, I know Paul's taking on the Jew, and I know we keep throwing the Jews under the bus, but it's okay to stop for a minute and see that we are just as guilty sometimes of the same thing. You say you worship the one true God. You say you exalt him above all this. That puts you in a, a spiritually superior position, you think. But if you don't live it, and if you don't demonstrate it, and if it's pride instead of humility, then there's something wrong. And the very righteousness and the very holiness and the very godliness that's supposed to draw the world to God can by your attitude and the way that you do it and the double standard that you hold actually push people away from God. That's the danger. And you have to be careful. You have to understand it's not enough just to take on the name of Jesus in baptism. It's not enough just to say, I'll go to Jesus' name church and I exalt the name of Jesus. And it's not enough just to have a holiness standard or standard of righteousness in your life. You've got to live it. You've got to live it in everything that you do. It's more than just a dress code. It's more than just a set of actions. It's more than just a, a set of rules to live by. You've got to live it in your character. Amen? got awful quiet in here all of a sudden it's 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 fun to jump on the jews and beat them down it's not so fun to recognize we can be guilty of the exact same offense if we're not careful amen so you've got to truly you've taken on the name of jesus in baptism we exalt that name above all others then you've got to bear that name in every part of your life you've got to live like he would have you to live act like he that means sometimes you show mercy that means sometimes you show grace when your flesh wants to have vindication that means sometimes you show love when you're repulsed because that's what Jesus would have done amen amen verse 25 says for circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Paul now uses the distinguishing physical mark of the Jew, going all the way back to Abraham. Circumcision is what separates them. 
And he uses it as an example to make a point and to make the point clear. Circumcision is an outward sign. But if the Jew did not manifest faith and obedience, then circumcision was of no effect. The physical reality was of no profit to him if it didn't show up in the way he lived. Circumcision was the seal of God's covenant with Israel. It was the seal that God used when he made the covenant with Abraham. It carried on through all the history of the nation. But Paul is saying that the Jew had to fulfill the actual requirements of the covenant for circumcision to matter. It wasn't enough just to be circumcised. If the Jew kept the law, then the circumcision was valuable. But if the Jew broke the law, it didn't matter that he was circumcised. His circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It doesn't matter anymore. It's not enough just to have that outward evidence. It has to show up in everything that he does in his life. It's not enough just to have the one thing to point to and say, well, that makes me a Jew. It had to be in everything that he lived. He had to fulfill the law. He had to live according to the call and the mandate of God. Amen? Verse 26 says, Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? We're back to the Gentiles now. We made this point in the first 16 verses. Now we're, we're attaching it to this argument here. It's the other side of the coin. If an uncircumcised Gentile follows the righteous requirements of the law, and we, we talked about that, how that, that just the very conscience of man motivates him. He knows the right. He knows the, what's right and what's wrong. He knows the difference between sin and, and righteousness. He knows, he knows murder is wrong. He knows you shouldn't steal. He knows you shouldn't covet. So if he fulfills the law, if he, if he was to obey God, if he was to, and we talked about how that conscience itself is not enough to save you. There's no way that any man could fully fulfill that law of God in, out of his conscience. But Paul's making the argument here that if an uncircumcised Gentile followed the righteous requirements of God, if he followed the righteous requirements of the law, even though he didn't have the law, that God would reward it to him as if he were circumcised. God would count his obedience as circumcision. The Gentile, despite his lack of the law, may respond to what God has made known to him. He may respond to the law of conscience in his heart. And this, for Paul, is acting out what circumcision really is. It was intended, it demonstrates what circumcision was intended to demonstrate. It's about more than just a physical act. It's about obedience to God. It's about more than just a single instant. It's about living a life of obedience to God. Circumcision was about obedience. The initial obedience of the act and then the continual obedience to the law. The act brought a man into the covenant. The covenant hinged on the law. The act alone didn't keep him in the covenant. His obedience to the law is what kept him in the covenant. Now you make the link to faith and obedience because it's faith that brings you to God. It's obedience that demonstrates your faith. 
It's not a single act of faith and obedience where you stand and say, I accept the Lord as my Savior. It's a continual life of obedience that grows out of that faith. It's the same. And Paul's making that equation. He's making that 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 example here. Circumcision wasn't just intended to be the single act. It was intended to be a life lived in obedience to the covenant. That's what your faith does. Your faith compels you to obey God. It compels you to live a life in submission to God. Verse 27 says, And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law. So this verse indicates that righteous Gentiles could stand in judgment against the Jew who did not obey the law. Obedience is what's in view here. It's obedience to the law of God. It's not about the circumcision anymore. It's about the obedience. It's not about that single act. It's about the continual life. See, the point was never just the act of circumcision. The point was obedience to God. And it wasn't obedience to God wasn't summed up in a single action. Obedience to God was summed up in a life that lived in obedience to God. So Paul is saying that the Jew, for all of his possession of the letter of the law and the physical act of circumcision, cannot be described as anything other than the transgressor of the law. He's broken the law. He's not lived in obedience. That act of circumcision hasn't profited him any. He's guilty before God. And the uncircumcised man who lacks the written law and has never received the physical act of, of the covenant that brought him into the covenant, will stand in judgment of the man who had the act, who had that physical sign and had received the law because he obeyed the law and didn't even know the law. But the Jew lived in disobedience to that which was given to him. And verse 28 says, and this is where Paul really brings it all home, verse 28-29, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. In short, a, a man has only, if a man has only the outward sign of circumcision, that he's not truly a Jew in God's sight. It wasn't just about that single act. goes on and says, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So the true Jew is one inwardly who is circumcised of the heart. He's one that, what does it mean to be circumcised inwardly in the heart? It means that you cut away sin, that you cut away that, that fleshly nature, that you separate yourself from sin, that you repent of your sins, that you die out to sin, that you make a change in your life. He does not that the real Jew doesn't just have the written law, but he has a circumcised spirit that obeys the law of God. He, he possesses the, the spirit of God that's written in his heart, and he obeys the will of God. Now, the Old Testament firmly supports what Paul is saying here. Paul is a student of the word of God, and I, I could take you to multiple passages that teach this principle. That, that adherence to the letter of the law only without faith and obedience does not 
bring a man into the covenant of God. It has to be that obedient faith, that continual life of living in submission to God. The true Jew is not the one who, who just has law, but it makes no impact on his life. He is the one who has the law and obeys it. His faith leads him to obedience to God. So Paul says the true Jew is not one who receives recognition and praise from men, but one who receives his recognition and praise from God. Now let me clarify something, and, and I'll come in quickly to a close, but I'm going to spend a few minutes right here. This passage dealing with circumcision is not saying that circumcision was unnecessary for the Jew, especially under the Old Covenant. If a Jewish male was not circumcised physically, he was cut off from the people of God. He was unable to participate in the Passover, and he was subject to the divine penalty of death under the law. Paul is not saying that circumcision did not matter. If a Jew refused circumcision, then the act of refusing to be circumcised manifested both disobedience and disbelief. And what circumcision was about is about obedience and faith. It was about obeying what God said to do. It was The point that Paul is making is that it's not mere circumcision alone that brought him into the covenant. Not saying circumcision didn't matter. It was not the mere act of circumcision alone that brought him into the covenant. He had to have obedient faith along with the act of circumcision. That's the point. Under the new covenant now, bringing this to where we live, God abolished the requirement for physical circumcision. That's not a a requirement to be a part of the church like it was to be a part of the people of God, the Israelites. Today we receive salvation from obedient faith by the circumcision of the heart. Not a physical, fleshly act, but a spiritual act that takes place on the inside. And that circumcision is just as important as the circumcision that Jew had in the Old Testament. Verse 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 19, reading from the New King James Version, says, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandment of God is what matters. That's New Testament scripture. And what he's saying is circumcision itself conferred no grace it was necessary only because God commanded it it was about obedience to God and so since the Christian since God does not command Christians under the new under the new testament under the new covenant to be circumcised circumcision itself doesn't matter but what matters is obedience to the word of God that's what matters Salvation is about obedience, about faith and obedience. It's about believing God and obeying God. It's about living a life that demonstrates the faith that you have. It matters what you do. Amen? Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. 
God doesn't require circumcision anymore. Amen. It's a medical practice in our nation. It's not a medical practice in every nation. It is not a requirement of God. But God still requires the principle that circumcision demonstrated. God still requires faith that results in obedience. God still requires people to live in obedience to God. He still requires submission to him. So it's not about circumcision. That doesn't avail anything, Paul says, but faith which works by love. Faith works by love, which means that faith is obedient. John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus answered them and said, If a man loves me, most of you can complete that verse. He'll keep my word. If a man loves me, he's going to do what I said to do. If a man loves me, he's going to obey me. Faith works by love. Love results in obedience. An obedient faith in Jesus Christ is what counts. Amen? So Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 says... In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So the circumcision of the new covenant is not done by hands, but it involves putting off the body of sins. It's the circumcision of the heart. Something happens inside. It happens with repentance. You die out to sin. You repent of your sins. You die out to that. You put away that. It goes on in verse 12 and says, Buried with him in baptism. Wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So Paul compares Christian baptism to circumcision. That's why it's important that he's not invalidating circumcision in Romans. Whenever Paul compares Christian baptism to circumcision, he's not implying that baptism is unnecessary or that it does not matter. Instead, he's making the point baptism is as important to the new covenant as circumcision was to the old covenant. You couldn't be a part of the old covenant without circumcision. Now, circumcision itself didn't make you remain in the covenant. You had to be obedient to the law. Baptism is as central to the new covenant as circumcision was to the old covenant. It matters that you go down to the water in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, just because you were baptized, does that mean that you're forever saved? Does that mean that you you can live any way you want to live? That's not what it means. No more than it meant if the Jew was circumcised, then he was forever under the covenant. He had to live a life that demonstrated that obedience to the law of God. Likewise, you repent of your sins. You're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You can't get in the covenant any other way. It's important. But it's a continual life of obedience that keeps you subject to the will of God and keeps you in the plan and purpose of God. Amen? See what I just did? I substituted amen for that. Does that make sense? I'm working on that. So when Paul, he makes a very strong point. He makes it Colossians and Galatians. It relates back to Romans. Water baptism is of no value unless it's accompanied by obedient faith. It's not just the act that saved you. It's the faith that results in obedience to the Word of God. It's, it's more than just 
one, two, three steps, you're saved. Go live any way you want to live. It's one, two, three steps, you're in the covenant. Live in the covenant of God. Amen? So the physical ceremony of baptism is important to the new covenant, but it is of no value without the inner spiritual work that takes place, without that faith and obedience. Since God's word commands water baptism for the remission of sins, a refusal to be baptized would be the same as a refusal by a Jew to be circumcised. It, 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 it puts you outside of the covenant. You can't get in the covenant without the circumcision. You can't get into the covenant without the baptism. Amen? But just as the true Jew was not just the Jew who was one outwardly, but as a Jew who is one inwardly, a true Christian is not just somebody who repented of their sins, was baptized in the name of Jesus, and was filled with the Holy Ghost once sometime way back down the road. But it's somebody who lives in obedience to the Spirit of God that lives inside of them. This is the point that Paul's making. The true Christian is just like the true Jew. He's a spiritual Christian. He is one that has been filled with the Spirit of God and is living in obedience to that Spirit that lives inside of him. A true Jew was not just a Jew who was circumcised physically, but it was a Jew who was circumcised spiritually. And a true Christian is not just one that was baptized physically, but it's one that's baptized spiritually. Amen? So you've got to die to sin. You do that in repentance. You've got to be buried with Jesus Christ in baptism. And then you rise to walk in the newness of life with the indwelling Spirit of God as God fills you with the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the new birth. And that new birth involves the baptism of water and of spirit. And it is the circumcision that cuts away. The, the hold that the flesh and sin has over you, the hold that the old man has on you and initiates you into that new life under the covenant of God. To stay in it, you've got to live in it. That was the difference. The Jew thought, well, once I got the law, now I'm forever in the law. I can live any way I want to live. And I'm here to tell you on a Sunday morning that's not the way it worked then, and that's not the way it works now. You repent, you're baptized, you're filled with the Holy Ghost, and you live. You live in accordance with that covenant. Amen. Would you stand with me? So what we see again this morning, and, and I know I covered a whole lot of Scripture, and I did it in a reasonable amount of time. I deserve a pat on the back. Amen. 